The United States says that Russia may have found a new source for weapons and artillery. Russian Minister of Defense Sergei Shoigu recently traveled to the DPRK to try to convince Pyongyang to sell artillery ammunition to Russia. Since that visit, President Putin and the leader of the DPRK, Kim Jong-un, have exchanged letters pledging to increase their bilateral cooperation. Plus, a political shakeup in Kyiv as the Minister of Defense is expected to resign. This is something that uh, Ukrainians were kind of waiting for, I can put it this way, because a uh, number of scandals uh, inside of the Ministry of Defense. And later in the program, a conversation about the strength of the Russian army. And we go to a job fair for Ukrainian refugees in Denver, Colorado. Today is Thursday, August 31st. From the Voice of America, this is Flashpoint Ukraine. Good evening, I'm Steve Karish in Washington. Mourners pay their respects to Evgeny Prigozhin at his grave in St. Petersburg. That story coming up. First, though, a developing story out of Kyiv, where President Volodymyr Zelensky has said that Ukraine has developed a new long-range weapon. The AP's Karen Chamas has the story. A day after a strike reached deep inside Russia, Ukraine's president said that his country had developed a long-range weapon. The statement by President Volodymyr Zelensky was an apparent reference to the previous day's strike on an airport in western Russia. Zelensky said on his Telegram channel that the weapon was produced by Ukraine's Ministry of Strategic Industries, but gave no other details. A day earlier, a four-hour wave of drones hit an airport on Russia's border with Estonia and Latvia. Moscow blamed the attack on Ukraine. I'm Karen Chamas. And now from Washington. The United States is accusing North Korea and Russia of working together to supply more weapons and materiel to Moscow for the war against Ukraine. John Kirby is the National Security Council spokesperson. That arms negotiations between Russia and the DPRK are actively advancing. Russian Minister of Defense Sergei Shoigu recently traveled to the DPRK to try to convince Pyongyang to sell artillery ammunition to Russia. Since that visit, President Putin and the leader of the DPRK, Kim Jong-un, have exchanged letters pledging to increase their bilateral cooperation. Our information further indicates that following Shoigu's visit, another group of Russian officials traveled to Pyongyang for follow-on discussions about potential arms deals between the DPRK and Russia. Following these negotiations, high-level discussions may continue in coming months. Now, under these potential deals, Russia would receive significant quantities and multiple types of munitions from the DPRK, which the Russian military plans to use in Ukraine. These potential deals could also include the provision of raw materials that would assist Russia's defense industrial base. And again, I'd remind, our export controls and sanctions are very much targeted at trying to eliminate Russia's ability to uh, to, to have those kinds of uh, raw materials and, and basic ingredients to uh, to provide uh, to provide to their military manufacturing capability. Acquiring weaponry from North Korea would violate UN Security Council resolutions that Russia signed. Linda Thomas Greenfield is the U.S. ambassador to the U.N. In its pursuit of these weapons, Russia will violate Security Council resolutions, including resolutions Russia itself voted for. In such arms deals, any such arms deals would be a serious violation of resolutions the Security Council adopted unanimously after the DPRK passed nuclear tests and ballistic missile launches. 
those resolutions prohibited all member states, including Russia, from procuring any arms from the DPRK. This sends the wrong message to aspiring proliferators that if you sell Russia uh, arms, Russia will defend, even enable, your pursuit of nuclear weapons. On numerous occasions, the DPRK has publicly said it will not sell arms to Russia. We urge the DPRK to cease its arms negotiations with Russia and abide by the public commitments Pyongyang has made. This is not the first time Russia has moved to violate Security Council resolutions to pursue its illegal war against Ukraine. There is now incontrovertible evidence that Russia has procured drones from Iran in violation of another resolution it voted for, Security Council Resolution 2231. Russia has since used those drones in punishing attacks against critical infrastructure in Ukraine. And we're very disappointed the UN has not carried out its mandate to investigate and document Russia's outrageous violations. Russia's pattern of behavior, flaunting its responsibilities as a member of the Security Council, propping up proliferating regimes is unacceptable. The United States is therefore taking direct action by exposing and sanctioning individuals and entities working to facilitate arms deals between Russia and the DPRK. On August 16th, we designated additional entities tied to an already sanctioned evasion network attempting to support illicit DPRK Russia arms deals. We cannot and we will not stay silent as we receive more information that Russia continues to turn to rogue regimes to try to obtain weapons and equipment in order to support its brutal war of aggression. We will continue to work with allies and partners to identify, expose, and counter Russian attempts to acquire military equipment from the DPRK or any state that is prepared to support Russia's war in Ukraine. And we will keep strengthening cooperation to address the DPRK's weapons of mass destruction and ballistic missile programs. This is a pressing matter of international peace and security, and it is one that demands the Council's attention. Thank you. That's Linda Thomas-Greenfield, the U.S. Ambassador to the U.N., Wednesday afternoon in New York. There has been no immediate comment from Moscow or Pyongyang. Followers and fans of Russian mercenary Evgeny Prigozhin laid flowers, messages, and poetry at his grave on Wednesday. Prigozhin was killed along with his inner circle in a yet-to-be-explained plane crash last week, two months after he led a rebellion against Russian military leaders. Reuters' Edward Baran has more. Followers of mutinous Russian mercenary Evgeny Prigozhin laid tributes at his grave on Wednesday. They hailed him as a fearless warrior after he was killed along with his inner circle in a yet-to-be-explained plane crash. Prigozhin was buried at this cemetery in his hometown of St. Petersburg on Tuesday. The spot is away from the glare of the publicity that in life he'd courted after leading his fighters on a dash towards Moscow before turning back. Sergei Abeltsev is a former Russian lawmaker among those paying respects. 
It is a big loss for Russia. We will feel that loss only later. As always, the realization of the loss will only come later. I think that nobody's better now that he is here. Another Wagner supporter who did not give his name laid flowers. It's difficult to talk, difficult to compose myself. The country is losing its patriots. This man could have done a lot for our great country. The private jet on which Prigozhin was travelling to St. Petersburg from Moscow crashed north of Moscow, killing all 10 people on board on August 23rd, including Prigozhin and top Wagner commanders. The cause is still unclear. Though he won the bloodiest battle yet of the Ukraine war for Russian President Vladimir Putin by capturing Bakhmut, Prigozhin became enraged with what he called the treacherous failings of Putin's military. After months of insulting Putin's top brass, Prigozhin marched towards Moscow before turning back 125 miles from the capital. Putin initially cast Prigozhin as a traitor whose mutiny could have tipped Russia into civil war, though he later did a deal with him to defuse the crisis. The day after the crash, Putin sent his condolences to the families of those killed and said he'd known Prigozhin for a very long time, adding that he had, quote, made serious mistakes but describing him as a talented businessman. The Kremlin has rejected as an absolute lie the suggestion by some Western politicians and commentators, for which they have not provided evidence, that Putin ordered Prigozhin to be killed in revenge. Russia, which invaded Ukraine in February 2022, calls its actions a special military operation. That's Edward Baran of Reuters reporting for us today. It's Ukrainian politics now with the expected resignation of the Minister of Defense and an attention-grabbing statement by the Secretary of the National Security and Defense Council of Ukraine. I'm joined by Anna Chernikova in Kyiv. Anna, a big day in Ukrainian politics. It looks like the Minister of Defense, Oleksiy Reznikov, is going to resign. Um, We're not sure if he will, but all all indications are saying that he will. Can you tell us why? What brought us to this point? Yes, so this was uh, somehow um, what Ukrainians expected for some time now. And information about his possible resignation, which should happen next week, according to sources, uh, internal sources from the from the uh, Ukrainian uh, political um, circles. Um, this is something that uh, Ukrainians were kind of waiting for. I can put it this way, because a uh, number of scandals uh, inside of the Ministry of Defense was happening recently, and uh, this was definitely shaking the position of Alexei Reznikov as a minister. What kind of scandals? Uh, yeah, uh, the recent one uh, was about the uh, the winter uniform, which apparently was uh, was purchased with uh, much higher price than it was supposed to, and avoiding possibilities of lower prices. And uh, what is even more, that this was purchased from the company, which uh, one of the owners is. Uh, a relative of of the 
president party um, uh, president party member of parliament so this was quite a big scandal uh, in this recent uh, weeks uh, and also previously Alexei Reznikov uh, and his ministry so ministry of defense uh, were accused of also uh, high prices of purchase of, of products for soldiers uh, like food products and also some um, little stuff which was happening during his term so this was kind of uh, well this kind of lead to this position uh, that we have now now you and i have spoken about this in the past and uh, president Zelensky mentioned this in a recent address about the scandal of falsifying medical reports for people to avoid military service is there any relation to that scandal to reznikov's resignation uh, not particularly confirmed for, for now because it's not only about Minister of Defense at this point, uh, but investigation is still ongoing. So it might be that there will be new positions to the Minister of Defense and, and the Minister Reznikov himself. But for the, for the moment, there is no particularly um, confirmation that this was one of the reasons. Might be. Uh, again, as I said, uh, investigation is still ongoing, and this is something uh, that just began. Uh, President Zelensky just recently announced that uh, this investigation will take take place. So uh, this is uh, kind of a fresh, uh, and uh, we have to wait for, for for more details from this investigation to come. Now, clearly, removing the minister of defense during a war can be quite disruptive. But another one of Ukraine's goals is also membership in EU and NATO. And for that, they need to clean house of a lot of corruption and fraud within the military, within the government. Uh, what's the Ukrainian public reaction to what's going on? Um, it was, so these two particular scandals with purchase of uniform and uh, food products, uh, it, it, it was very, very offensive for Ukrainians, definitely, uh, and Ukrainians are de definitely not happy about that. Uh, and this comes in line with uh, some additional smaller uh, scandals that, that were happening during Alexei Reznikov's time uh, as the Minister of Defense. So definitely Ukrainians uh, want uh, him to go. Now, in other political news, Oleksiy Danilov, he's the Secretary of National Security and Defense Council of Ukraine, he said something um, that got people talking to a, uh, a German news outlet. Can you tell us uh, what he said? Uh, yeah, so in his recent interview to German uh, media outlet Welt, he asked about this um, information that Apparently, uh, he found somewhere uh, in through anonymous sources that it might be that 70,000 of Ukrainian soldiers have already been killed. Uh, and uh, Oleksiy Danilov denied these acquisitions. He said that it's definitely impossible for Ukrainian forces to continue to fight if this would would have been true. So he said that 70,000 of killed uh, is not is is a number which is too high. So Danilov was denying that 70,000 Ukrainian troops have been killed. He said that number is way too high. Is that something that the Ukrainian people believe and would be happy about? Um, to be honest, a lot of Ukrainians think that uh, the numbers are really high, but uh, I cannot particularly 
comment on 70,000 because um, it's not really discussed within the society, but a lot of people believe that numbers are really, really high and that, and of course, uh, people believe that the government definitely uh, are trying to calm uh, the society down, uh, saying that a number is uh, is not that high or that uh, it's less than uh, any, you know, acquisitions which are coming from media because it's not the first time that journalists uh, or media outlet providing certain uh, certain numbers and Ukrainian government are, are denying them. Anna Chernikova in Kiev. Anna, as always, thank you for your time today. Thank you, Steve. You're listening to VOA's Flashpoint Ukraine. I'm Steve Karish. <laughs> Believed to be the fifth largest military force in the world, the Russian army has not been as successful in Ukraine as President Vladimir Putin initially hoped when he invaded the country a year and a half ago. Anne Chikvadze spoke with experts about Russia's military strengths and weaknesses. The story is narrated for us today by Anna Rice. When Russia invaded Ukraine in February 2022, Russian President Vladimir Putin promised he would capture its capital, Kiev, in three days. Eighteen months later, that still hasn't happened, despite the Kremlin spending over $60 billion on the war effort, said Gary Schmidt of the American Enterprise Institute, a Washington-based think tank. Everybody was looking at basically the amount of money that the that the Politburo, I mean, that the Kremlin was throwing at the Russian military and saying, well, that they're going to have real capabilities. Atlantic Council strategy and security expert Ian Brzezinski believes the invasion of Ukraine was designed as a short-term campaign that has now dragged into a defensive brawl. Now they're on the defense. Uh, we've been, they've been given, unfortunately, a lot of time to dig in and establish fortifications and minefields um, and you know, trench lines and such. It's not a world-class fighting force, but it's still a significant force. Today, the Russian army amounts to about one million soldiers. Schmidt says that because of its losses in Ukraine and despite its mobilization, large parts of the army are not ready for combat. They were once a juggernaut when it came to uh, armored uh, uh, operations. And it turns out that, again, without combined operations capabilities, uh, without the logistics necessary to carry that out, um, and without the sort of combined use of air power, um, that juggernaut just doesn't exist. Brzezinski says the August 2008 conflict in Georgia exposed weaknesses in discipline, command, and structure within the Russian military. But it was, you know, a dismal performance. And Putin vowed that he was going to change things, and he embarked upon a 10 to 15 year military modernization plan. Moscow started to transition its forces into a modernized, more compact, contracted army, adopting Western-style battalion tactical groups. But Schmidt says it also compromised, prioritizing unit quantity over quality, and military leadership exaggerated capabilities to please political leaders. The reforms, he says, haven't been that effective. So most of the money was getting drained away from actually improving the military to, to to the pockets of generals and and, uh, contractors. Today, Russia faces a manpower problem in Ukraine, 
and bolstering troop numbers alone won't help and won't be easy, says Philip Bridlove, a retired U.S. Air Force general who was NATO's top commander from 2013 to 2016. If you think Russia is completely done, I think you're wrong. There is a lot more capability, but it would take a huge political lift for Putin to continue to call up forces and do some of the things that he might have to do. The experts VOA spoke with say they are waiting to see how Wagner fighters respond to the death of their rebellious chief, Evgeny Prigozhin, in a plane crash believed to have been orchestrated by Putin. For Anya Chikvadze, NRIs, VOA News. And finally today, finding a job can be tough for anyone. But imagine you're a refugee, thousands of kilometers from home. You don't know anyone and you don't speak the language. Seeing the need, a Ukrainian community group in the western U.S. state of Colorado organized a job fair for newly arrived war refugees. Svetlana Prestenska has our story from Denver. Uprooted by war, these newly arrived Ukrainian refugees are starting new lives in the United States. This job fair, organized by the nonprofit Ukrainians of Colorado, connects them with local businesses and community support. Ukrainian chef Tatiana Stratilat and her son fled the war last year. Now she is working at a culinary school in the western U.S. state and volunteers to help new refugees. So when you came here, try to find another Ukrainian, try to find, connect with all organizations like Ukrainians of Colorado. Our people so open, they will give you a lot, a lot of advice and very quickly you will receive all network and all connection with local business to find work here. Medical clinic owner Ellie Titarenko says she's always looking to hire Ukrainian specialists. This week I had a young man who came from Donetsk, Ukraine. He was a felsher, uh, like a nurse practitioner back, back in Ukraine, working with newborn babies. As of right now, his English is not the strongest, but his knowledge, his skill and his passion are all present. So for me, it's so important to provide him with the opportunity to work here. The job fair was part of a week-long Ukrainian Independence Day festival in August, with Ukrainian and Polish food and volunteers selling homemade goods to help displace civilians in Ukraine. There were Ukrainian, Bulgarian and Polish bands and a performance by the Lithuanian dance group Ruta. Evgenia Fischer came with her family. It's really important for, for people who come over here and don't know nothing, don't know nobody. It's really important to meet each other and you can find job here because you can find new friends, you can listen to Ukrainian music. Woodworker Jacek Kostu says it is how members of the Ukrainian community support one another. That's always good business because that's, you know, helping each other and recommending somebody that you know instead of going to big shops or big businesses. Illustrator Anna Bruja and her husband organize mountain hikes with newly arrived Ukrainians. Connections meaning a lot. This is a really great gathering of uh, Ukrainians here. We can help the people who just came, the refugees, with networking, with uh, helping to find the jobs, uh, get to know each other, also not to feel lonely. <laughs> The Ukrainians of Colorado group says more than 5,000 refugees have come to Colorado since the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Svetlana Pristinska, VOA News, Denver. And that'll do it for us today. 
Stay up to date with continuing coverage on Ukraine and news from around the world 24 hours a day. Visit us online at voanews.com and on social media be sure to follow VOA News. On behalf of everyone at VOA, thanks for listening. Until next time, I'm Steve Karish. Washington, bam, 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 zip, D.C.